Welcome everyone to Courtside, a discussion of legal issues. Our discussion began with Donald Trump and his multiple assaults on the Constitution, on women, other things like that. But we are now in version of 2.0 of Courtside. We don't have to talk about him anymore, and it's so refreshing. So sorry I missed last week. As some of you know, I'm serving a special prosecutor in the Derek Chauvin case. I'm not commenting on it. I said I wasn't going to comment on it from the start, so don't read anything into it except that that's just standard rules. So today, I want to talk about an issue that's near and dear to my heart, which is D.C. statehood. And I started thinking about this about 20 years ago when I read an article by a law professor then called Jamie Raskin. Now, of course, you know him in Congress, but... uh, um, I read I read some of his work, and when I was at the Justice Department in the Obama administration, I wrote in an opinion my views that uh, that D.C. statehood could be accomplished through legislation, and my detractors leaked that to the media, but I'm darn proud of these views, and I want to tell you why. So, like, um, you know, and having said that, I don't want you to think that D.C. statehood is like all sunshine and roses. I mean, if we did get D.C. statehood, D.C. residents would have to learn to live year-round with Matt Gates, uh, the congressman from Florida. He'll probably move the minute that he hears that D.C. is the youngest state. So I want to explain why it's the right thing to do and indeed the democratic thing to do. And so, you know, the founders, when you go back to 1787, they obviously didn't intend right at the founding for D.C. to be a state but neither did they intend Alaska or Hawaii to be a state or to have 700,000 residents in the District of Columbia or in the District of Columbia to have a port for flying machines named after Ronald Reagan, of all things. So D.C. is not your great-great-great-great-grandfather's capital anymore. Now, why wasn't D.C. a state? Well, one answer to it is that it just at the founding had too few residents. There were only about 3,000 people at the time of the Constitution. And so it didn't make a whole lot of sense. And indeed, people who owned property in D.C. could vote in Maryland or Virginia. So that's one answer. But I think the real answer, like so much that is wrong in our nation, goes back to the original sin of race. And indeed, in the 19th century, people in D.C. started losing their rights to vote in both national and local elections, so much so that ultimately Congress eliminated D.C. residents' ability to govern themselves. During Reconstruction, Washington, D.C. was about one-third African-American, and Congress passed laws excuse me, <coughs> excuse me, in 1871 and 1874 that gave the president, for whom D.C. residents could not vote, the sole power to appoint leaders in D.C. This was all about race, and it continued to be about race. In 1957, Washington, D.C. became America's first predominantly African-American city. In 1970, the African-American population was over 537,000 people, 71% of the city's population. And by then, many of the Caucasians were moving to Virginia and Maryland, where they, of course, could vote. And during this time period, African-Americans fought for changes, and they accomplished some very big things. Of course, the right to vote itself for the presidency in the 23rd Amendment was secured in 1961, and that allowed D.C. residents in the 1964 election to vote for the first time uh, in many years for the president 
of the United States. And then in 1973, you had the Home Rule Act passed, which gave D.C. the right to elect their own mayor and their own city council. There was still a lot of resistance. Just the year before, in 1972, John Rarick, who was a member of Congress from Louisiana, he warned that any measure, quote, giving the district power to govern itself could lead to a takeover by the black Muslims, by the black Muslims. And so Rarick and company got big concessions in the Home Rule Act. Congress has the right, and still does today, to reject any laws that the D.C. mayor and the D.C. city council pass, and they've used it unsparingly. In 1971, Washington, D.C. also got the right to send a member to Congress. Not someone who could vote, mind you, but someone at least could have a voice and who could serve on committees. Now, there was a push in the late 1970s to give D.C. more of a, you know, to give D.C. members in con Congress who could vote. And in 1978, Congress actually passed a constitutional amendment that would have given D.C. two senators and a voting member in the House of Representatives, like every other state. However, it died in 1985 after receiving to receive the requisite ratification from 38 states under Article 5 of the Constitution. And, you know, right now, statehood is obviously incredibly important to, the, to Washington, D.C. residents. And, you, you know, our license plates say it, no taxation without representation. But I want to focus today on one recent set of events, um, the Black Lives Matter protests from last summer, which I think really underscore this. And I want to highlight here an incredible op-ed written by Susan Rice, who's now at the White House. Um, she wrote in the New York Times, those of you interested in this, it's worth grabbing and reading. But here's basically what she said. She said, largely because DC lacks statehood, Trump had the authority to put people on our city streets with military Humvees, to fly Black Hawk helicopters, load terrorist protesters, terrorize protesters, and to deploy thousands of federal forces. You know, she said basically, if this were, um, you know, if this were a state, such things would not have happened, or it would have been much harder for happen to happen. And of course, she points out in the piece that William Barr and others at the Justice Department authorized tear gas on peaceful protesters. All this, she says, for a photo op. She says DC is the only capital in the world, the democratic world at least, whose citizens lack equal voting rights. She said its population exceeds 700,000, more than Wyoming's and Vermont's, that DC citizens pay more per capita in federal income taxes than any state in the country, and more in total federal income tax than 22 different states. Now, her words prompted an immediate rejoinder by Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas, who claimed that Wyoming was far more deserving of statehood than Washington, D.C. He said that Wyoming is smaller in population, yes, but it has three times as many workers in mining, logging, and construction, for whatever that's worth, and ten times as many workers in manufacturing. And look, I don't care where these, you know, jobs are jobs. But, you know, I've never thought that the right to vote was tied to whether or not you were a logger or some other profession or if you had a profession at all. Um, so anyway, we know what Tom Cotton was really saying. He wasn't meaning mining and logging and stuff like that. And statehood, D.C. statehood, is, of course, just one of many known causes for rigged elections 
which include failure, you know, things like having literacy tests, you know, not having access to mail-in ballots, having long polling lines, and when lines are long, barring people from even having water handed to them. Nothing keeps our elections free and fair, like making sure that the only eligible people to vote are dehydrated loggers and farmers. Now, the question is, what can you do about it? Well, there is a bill pending right now in Congress, a 2020 statehood bill sponsored by our non-voting delegate, Eleanor Holmes Norton. It has 225 co-sponsors, and it would carve out a specific place for a capital district to remain, which would have like the federal government's working buildings. But everything else would become effectively a state. The D.C. mayor would not be called the mayor anymore. She would be called the governor. The district council would not be considered just a local city council. It would be a legislative body, just like any other state legislature, and would have the rights of any state. And it would work to repeal the language of the 23rd Amendment, which, you know, right now guarantees three electoral votes. Uh, that, of course, would be supplanted by this new legislation. Now, you know, if the Republicans want to oppose D.C. statehood because they think that Congress is corrupt, just wait till they hear where all those representatives fly in from. I, for one, can't wait to see the House Freedom Caucus, the ones who think that they are the snake in the don't tread on me flag. I'd like to see them vote in favor of taxation without representation. And I want to end tonight by giving to you our mayor's words, Mayor Bowser's words on this in the congressional hearing last week. Here's what she said. Quote, the truth is over 220 years, we've had various experiences of suffrage for black men to all of suffrage being stripped away to having appointed officials to the situation where we are now, which is limited home rule. What we know is that we don't have representation here in this House of Representatives. This is anti-democratic and it's un-American and it has to be fixed now. That's how she left things and that's how I'll leave things with you. I'll see you next week.